It's football season. Time for the Gridiron Breakdown. Your host, RJ. Well, when was the last time 80,000 people showed up to see if you're doing chemistry experiments? Alan. You play football like Engineero played football. Let's get to the breakdown. It's time for the Gridiron Breakdown Show, where we talk about the X's and O's of the top college football games each week. I'm Jay, and co-pilot Alan is on family duty tonight at his daughter's recital. So we have a very special guest, Gridiron Breakdown alumnus and Professor Emeritus Josh Hathaway joining the show (laughs) once again. Josh, can you believe we have reached the end of the regular season? You know what? Uh, First, it's great to be with you. Um, I'm glad to have the opportunity to do this. And no, it really did. You know, we came out of rivalry weekend and then championship weekend, which in a sense is kind of the first week of the postseason. Um, and now we, you know, now we head into the bowls. It's shocking to me. I don't know what you thought, Jay. Just let's, let's, I thought this was actually a really good college football season. Um, there was some good football played. There were some good teams. There were some fun, unexpected, uh, teams and surprises. I like that this one, you know, for as as many things as kind of went chalk, we still got our share of surprises. And so I, I loved it. I can't believe we're down to, you know, the final games of the 2019-2020 season. No, I agree with you. I would title this season Wildly Entertaining. I mean, week yeah. to week, and you've done the breakdown with us before. Alan and I talk, talk about, like, there's going to be those weeks, but we don't really have any games to talk about. And honestly, every week on the show, we found something interesting, some fun games. Yeah. There was just good football all around. There was some intrigue. I mean, honestly, let, let's call it the ACC Coastal Race was something to follow all year because could Virginia be the seventh team in seven years to win it? And by George, they did. The Pac-12 was incredibly uh, even in a lot of ways, and you had a lot of teams, you know, duking it out you had um well, and, injuries and that changed teams changed teams destinies you had other teams with we had i mean really this was the year of the transfer quarterback too with what justin yeah. fields and jalen hurts did among other guys so i mean there, there was a lot of intrigue this year and then you know in the big 10 where minnesota came out of nowhere and you know wisconsin and you know even for a brief moment my beloved hawkeyes they didn't wind up winning it but they had a good run, and once again, Kinnick Stadium was a foil for a team with a lot riding on it. it, it they've Iowa really, you know, and this is another podcast for another time, talking about, you know, who is Iowa's, whose season is Iowa going to screw up? They may or may not, Kirk Ferentz may or may not ever get them back to a BCS Bowl, but which Big Ten power is going to find their crucible at Kinnick Stadium against the Hawkeyes. It's, it was a lot of fun this year. And what's crazy is, you know, and we're going to talk about it tonight when we get into the playoff seedings a couple segments from now. For all the things, again, there was so much chalk this season, and yet what a fun season this really was. It really was. We've got some different teams in the playoffs, and like you say, we'll get to those. But just to update yeah. everybody on the picks records as they are. Allen is 117 and 52 on the year. I'm 114 and 55. So we're right there together. We got one more game to pick officially this season, and then we'll uh, we'll see how it all shakes out once these you know 50 thousand bowl games are done uh, and that's that's its own set of intrigue and another show yeah, where we'll is. talk about because you got guys that sit out now and it's you know who do you pick but let, let's do a quick recap on conference championship weekend for the power five 
Oregon ran past Utah and what I thought was a real surprise to win the Pac-12. Not that Oregon wasn't good, but we both picked Utah on the on the show last week. Oklahoma found a way to beat Baylor in overtime in the Big 12 championship, kind of the way Oklahoma's finished the season. They just keep finding ways to win. LSU absolutely torched Georgia to win the SEC. No real surprise there. Ohio State came back and beat Wisconsin, and for like an hour there, it looked like Ohio State might give the committee some heartburn, but that, that didn't happen. And then Clemson absolutely housed Virginia as we knew they would to win the ACC. So, Josh, I'll, I'll pitch it to you. Just your your overall thoughts and kind of rundowns of, of some bullet points you have about conference championship weekend for the Power Five conferences. Absolutely. So, um, first off, I got to start. All right, the biggest surprise to me, biggest surprise of all the conference championship games was the way Wisconsin jumped out on Ohio State at the outset. I didn't see that one coming. Uh, Wisconsin didn't look great against Ohio State when they played in the regular season coming off of that unconscionable loss to the Fighting Illini of Illinois, who are going to a bowl, and I know that's another show, but Lovey Smith, well done, the Illini are in a bowl. Um, that was my biggest surprise. Uh, moving to the SEC championship game for a second. Georgia has a lot of work to do on offense to find any kind of identity. I know a lot of people are going to look at Jake Fromm um, and and what his draft prospects are and, and, and all those sorts of things. But <clears throat> Georgia just all season long, and they wound, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this later. They wound up number five. They beat top 15 teams in Florida, Auburn, and Notre Dame this year but they never had an offensive identity whatsoever in the games that went well, they got enough offense to win and their defense stayed, you know, took care of them. But in the games where their offense was just so mediocre. And so that was something that really came out of me because again, LSU's defense is not the classic LSU defense that we're used to seeing with Nick Saban and, and Les miles. Um, my other takeaway from that one <clears throat> You know, we're going to talk about Joe Burrow some over the course of this uh, episode of the Gridiron Breakdown. Putting aside numbers, just watching some of the plays, watching him multiple times shake off good Georgia Bulldog defenders, keeping his eyes downfield and throwing strikes to some really talented receivers, just from a, a physical standpoint, he impressed me a lot. Just from from that aspect alone. Oklahoma, let's move to the Big 12 real quick. Oklahoma has improved its defense, but it is still not good to carry a team. So that offense is going to have to perform better in the red zone. I don't know if you noticed this, Jay. I'm sure you did. Um, but, but for folks who maybe didn't watch the game, in the third quarter at one point, the Oklahoma Sooners were outgaining the Baylor Bears 135 to 5 yards of total offense. But on those three drives where Oklahoma put those yards up, they got one touchdown and had to settle for field goals twice. Now, if you've got a really good defense, as Oklahoma is, you know, goes into the postseason, if you've got a really good defense, maybe you, maybe that works. Oklahoma's defense is better. It's not that good. Their red zone offense has a lot of work to do. The other thing I want to say, I want to throw a big shout out. Matt Rule has done an amazing job of turning Baylor into a very competitive, solid, complete football team in the wake of dire circumstances from the Art Bryles era. And then in this game alone, 
they got down to their third string quarterback. And Jay, I don't know if you saw this. You you probably did. At one point, their third string quarterback was two of three for 159 yards. Yes. <laughs> crazy. <laughs> and so Baylor kept fighting. And so I think that Matt Rule deserves a ton of credit for that. Um, you mentioned the Pac-12 championship. Just real quick. Oregon had one of the best offensive lines in college football all year and played perhaps their best game against a really good Utah defense. They dominated the line of scrimmage in that game, something that Mario Cristobal has been working on since taking over in Eugene. And I don't know if you saw this, but many people have asked Cristobal about scheduling, and in particular scheduling a team like Auburn on a neutral site and whether or not that hurt the Ducks' chances for the playoffs. Let me tell you something, kids. It was a loss to Coach Herm in the desert that cost the Ducks, not the loss to Auburn in Dallas. So mm-hmm. those were kind of my thoughts from the uh, conference championship games, my quick hitters. Yeah, I, I, I think you've nailed it exactly. And again, even with, with some real chalky stuff going on, you had some entertainment in those games. I mean, I think you nailed that Big 12 championship so well. You look at the, the stat box of that and you're like, how was that an overtime game? Like at all, yeah. but it, that that has been the story of Oklahoma. The back half of this season is they'll get out and then they'll just kind of do self destruction for a quarter yeah. and a half, and sometimes they win, and sometimes they you know, one time they didn't <laughs> against Kansas State, but they found ways to win. Everybody else looked great. I, I think you really nailed Joe Burrow down, man. the The thing I've seen from him that has changed so much from last year to this year, because last year, I mean, he was barely a 50% passer and stuff. They finally put in a scheme that used his skills, and the thing that that guy has is downfield vision and absolute accuracy. And as I wrote in my column in the Dallas Times, that it's amazing that LSU finally realized that, hey, we have a lot of good wide receivers here. Maybe we should use them. And they started doing so, and both of those guys, Terrence Marshall and, and Jamar Chase, had outstanding years. And, you know, I'll give Wisconsin credit for being the little engine that could. You know, I mean, they really came out and punched Ohio State in the mouth. And Ohio State, though, Ryan Day, absolutely wonderful job. And, yes, he inherited the world, but he had to manage it well. They never got in a hurry. They never panicked. They just played their game and, and salted away and won like they were supposed to. So very cool stuff from the conference championships, the power five. Let's run through the G five real quick though. Cause those were some entertaining games. Uh, Memphis were. survived against Cincinnati in the American. And then Mike Norvella headed to Florida state. We'll talk about that in a bit, but Memphis got, got a big win and landed themselves in the cotton bowl. So congrats to them. FAU uh, toasted UAB when everybody knew Lane Giffen was gone. And everybody was players do, and they said, I don't care. And they absolutely whipped UAB. Did not see that. I thought it'd be a much closer game. Boise State did an absolute, uh, to give credit to the solid verbal guys, absolute crock-potting of Hawaii. I mean, they boiled them very slowly <laughs> and, and tenderized that meat the whole way and got it done. Uh, Miamiville, Ohio beat Central Michigan. That was a really good back-and-forth game in the MAC. MAC's a lot of fun football. And then Eli Drinkwitz at Appalachian State went 12-1, and beat Louisiana to win the Sun Belt, and then took that all the way to Missouri. So uh, thoughts on the, on the G5 Conference Championship <clears throat> games? Well, one, you know, I, look, I do want to throw, I do, I want to do, I do want to recognize Boise State. What a great season they had and, and, and what a good job. And they handled Hawaii just fine. Now, I know we're going to talk coaching hires and playoff selections here in just a couple of segments very soon. But my big takeaway from the group of five conference title games was this. I don't know if the committee does or doesn't care about conference championships. 
But I can tell you who does. Power five athletic directors, three group yeah. of five conference champion <laughs> coaches landed jobs um, either just before or just after their teams won. You know, whether yeah. it's um, Eli Drinkworth or, or Bill Norvell or Lane Kiffin. Um, you know, again, you know, the, the, the committee and, you know, we're about to head into talking about some of that and things they did well, things, eh, you know, there's always going to be some criticism. You know, when, when the playoff committee was first conceived, I think we're, is this year five or year six, Jay? We're in year five of the playoff committee. Year five. They said when they started that conference championships was going to mean something. And we've seen them walk that walk. And we've seen them at times. Well, it's debatable how much that matters. Yeah. Um, but, but these athletic directors, three of the five group of five champions landed really good jobs. Um, or, or got promotions. We'll talk about how good those jobs well, are. And, and can I say that too, my big that, that four of them could have Brian Harson basically told people to stop calling him in Boise that he was fine. And oh so, yeah, look, his yeah. day may yet come. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think he's going to wind up doing what Chris Peterson did is he's going to wait until it's absolutely the thing he wants. And then he's going to yeah. go do it. And I think it's fitting that Chris Peterson's Washington team gets to play Boise state in a bowl game to finish his career. We we did that another day, but I, I found that yeah. nugget to be interesting. Potentially finish his career, at least finish this consecutive chapter. We'll see yeah. if this is the end for him, but I do think that's, you know, one of those, you know, and again, we'll talk about all the bowls. We'll do a big bowl uh, extravaganza. That's one that has its own kind of intrigue. It's going to be a kind of below the radar, lower tier bowl game, but one that might kind of be worth checking out as yeah. Chris Peterson goes up against his old school. And yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah, lots of fun stuff. So we've, we've batted around it enough. It's time to, to lay it out. Everybody knows, but the playoffs are set. So we've got this all going down on December the 28th. LSU is going to take on Oklahoma in the Peach Bowl. The one versus the four LSU getting to the number one spot after winning the SEC championship in convincing fashion. Ohio State will take on Clemson in the Fiesta Bowl, the two and the three there. I, I got to tell you, honestly, I, I don't know who we would have put in at the four that would have made that interesting when, once we got down to who was really in contention for it. I, I really think yeah. LSU, Ohio State, Clemson have, have separated themselves from the rest of college football. And that's nothing against Oklahoma, but it's just what I've seen on the field. That's what I would say. But I got to tell you, Josh, honestly, I think we've got a couple of entertaining playoff games, potential for entertaining playoff games here in this. So your thoughts about the playoffs and the seeding? So the Oklahoma is really lucky that Oregon and Utah couldn't handle prosperity because I firmly believe they both get in ahead of the Sooners had either finish as a one-loss champion. Agree. Hmm. The committee got the right teams in the right order. That's how I would have seeded them. A very strong case. Very strong case can be made for Ohio State getting the one seed. And it's a big deal when the differences between Clemson and Oklahoma is this stark. But this is exactly how I would have seeded it. We have the potential for one great opening round game and a classic title game. Because again, Jay, you know, you, you alluded to it. And, and I think all of our listeners and, and college football fans do recognize there is a clear divide between the top three and number four. But honor is due to Oklahoma. Lincoln Riley is a phenomenal coach. Alex Grinch has done really good work in just one year on Oklahoma's defense. It's going to take longer than that. And, you know, you and I've talked about it. It reminds me a little bit of when Dabo Sweeney, um, when, when Chad Morris was his OC, when they brought Brent Venables in, 
there was immediate improvement, but it took a couple of years for Venables to get Clemson's defense to play at a level at or near where their offense had been playing and continues to play. I think Alex Grinch is the right guy for the job. I think that he can continue to improve that Sooners defense, but we're talking about 2020, 2019-2020 um, playoff season. And, you know, I talked about it when we were doing the um, conference championship breakdown. If Oklahoma, if Lincoln Riley and Oklahoma aren't scoring touchdowns in the red zone, they're going to get waxed. And, and we'll talk about some of that, but just there's a big divide. Oklahoma is, I think, look, their defense is better than it has been in a number of years. Mm -hmm. Is their offense as good as it's been the last couple of years? Not sure, but I do know this. Clemson, Ohio State, LSU from 3-2-1, they're the cream of the crop teams. Uh, I can't wait to see it. I'll admit it would have been fun had Ohio State gotten the one seed to get um, Ryan Day and Lincoln Riley calling plays against each other. Yeah, But in the end, we got the seeding that I think is correct. It's controversial, but I like it. And I think that, you know, because the Pac-12 imploded, we've got the correct four teams. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, we, we do. We really do. And I agree with you. Had Oregon handled prosperity against Arizona State and they were a one loss going into that, that Pac-12 championship game, the winner of the Pac-12 would have got in because they would have had a little bit better resume, things like that. But it just didn't work out that way. And, and had I Utah knocked off Oregon, yeah, in a close one, especially, mm -hmm. especially because Oklahoma went to overtime against Baylor. I don't think that Utah would have had to do anything more than beat Oregon to get yep. in. They, they, um, they could have but, done but it by, by just winning, yeah. and they didn't. But, you know, I'll say this. I've seen weirder things happen. We could get Ryan Day versus Lincoln Riley in the championship game. Who knows? You know, we got we a could because a three seed has never won it, and the four seed has won, more, has won as many championships as any. So, right. you know, we talk about Oklahoma not being um, as good as the other three, and I really have a hard time. I don't think that Oklahoma can knock off LSU at all. But really the reason I don't think Oklahoma can win the championship is I don't think they can win two games. Yeah. Even if they somehow pull off the miracle and get one, and I don't see that coming. And again, that, that this is all for another show, but the challenge for Oklahoma would be to beat two of these teams, whereas um, Ohio State and, and LSU and Clemson to only have to do it once. Yeah, I, different different animals. I will say the Ohio State Clemson; th those teams have they're going to have to beat a good team twice, most likely. Yeah, which is that's yeah. going to be tough. But that that's fun to get into as we go through the playoffs. Yeah. We'll do that yeah, on we'll another show. But I I generally agree with you. I mean, I've said all along. I think Ohio State's the most complete team I've said all year. I would have been fine for them being the one, but I understand why the committee put LSU one. And I'm and not. I agree like, with you. I'm not broken up about it. Yeah, nope. I agree with you on all that. And if the committee had come back with Ohio State as one. Like I said, this is the way I would have seeded it. Had the committee given the one seed to Ohio State rather than LSU, I would not be tearing my garments. I would not be outraged. Again, I think that the Chuck, and we talked about separation. I think one and two are very close. Then I think there is a three that is just a hair behind one and two. And then I think there's a big separation between four. So I think there are a couple of levels. LSU and Ohio State, I think, you know, and 
Clemson might be the first three seed to win this because that is a great football team. They just didn't really get tested. But um, I do think that LSU and Ohio State were the two best. And, And then, you know, then you get Clemson. Then you've got, you know, a good Oklahoma team. Um, they started out really strong. They they improved on defense. That Kansas State loss is inexplicable. And then but the thing that was that I think is more troubling than the Kansas State losses, after that game, they rarely looked dominant again. Yeah. They kept winning. Yeah. They just didn't put people away. Did. And part of that, yeah. they had some injuries, things like that. But, you know, they every did. team has to deal they with did. those. And then so. Baylor's, a great, Baylor's a really good football team. Yeah, so, they are. They, and yeah. they had to play them twice down that stretch. Yeah, they, they've done fantastic stuff. So that's the playoff set. We'll talk about the Bulls at another time. But a lot of coaching news has happened. So we're recording this yeah. on Tuesday, December the 10th. I'm just going to run through everything we know of as of now. This might There's change. A lot. And just today. Yeah, just yeah, today, just today stuff happened. happened. Yeah. So Florida State hired Mike Norville out of Memphis. We've already mentioned that. Um, Ole Miss hired Lane Kiffin from Florida Atlantic. Arkansas hired Sam Pittman. And if you go, who? He's the offensive line and assistant head coach for Georgia and built the offensive lines at Georgia. He's also got Arkansas ties and coached there before. Missouri hired Eli Drinkwitz from Appalachian State, who had been an OC. Uh, he started back with Gus Malzahn at Auburn. He was with Norvell at Memphis. He was um, at NC State for a little while. He was at Tulsa. And then he came over to, to Appalachian State and led him to 12-1 and this year. So Missouri got their guy there. South Florida, Charlie Strong was out. South Florida finally pried away one of Dabo's guys. He got Jeff Scott, the co-offensive coordinator and wide receivers coach out of Clemson, who's been there for 12 years, been co-OC for 10 years. Um, Texas San Antonio, which I happen to think is an up-and-coming job, got Jeff Trailer, who was the running backs coach at Arkansas, highly regarded. Old Dominion hired Ricky Rain, who was the offensive coordinator at Penn State. Um, Virginia Tech, longtime defensive coordinator Bud Foster, who we both admired. Yeah, retired. Look, should be be in the College Football Hall of Fame as an assistant coach. Yeah, I just go ahead. Amazing. So I just, I, I can't. I can't stress that enough. Yeah. They hired Justin Hamilton for defensive coordinator. He was the safeties coach, had been in player personnel. He played there. He was the guy that both Justin Fuente and Bud Foster said, this is the guy ready to do this. So they, they've handed the lunch bell to, to Justin Hamilton of Virginia Tech. Still open as of this recording. Boston College, Memphis, Colorado State, though they've had some talks, Fresno State, UNLV, New Mexico are still open, but all of those teams are talking about people. So real, real quick before we get to what's still open, just thoughts on those hires. What do you like? What do you got questions about? What are you not so sure about? Okay, so, so here are my thoughts on, on what we know so far. Best hire, Florida State hiring Mike Norvell, only 38. He doesn't have a ton of head coaching experience. And we're talking, we're talking about Florida State. I know the last couple of years, Jimbo's last year and all of Willie Taggart was terrible. But Florida State's a premier job. I like Norvell. He did look when, when Justin Fuente left, Norvell took over and improved upon what was there. We've seen a lot of younger coaches do well, you know, Lincoln Riley, Matt, Get- you know, we could, we could go on and on, but I, I do love this hire. I think he's done, I think he's done a great job at Memphis and I think he knows how to 
build a program. I think he's going to do really well. I think that of the candidates that were realistically available, and again, Florida State's one of the plum jobs, I think they got the best guy available in this um, for, for the situation. Oh, I, I, I love, agree completely on that. Just to dovetail with you a little bit on, on yeah. Norvell and Florida State. Florida State is one of those dozen teams in the nation that I think has a legitimate shot in the current playoff system to win a national championship. Yep. They've got yep. everything they need. They've done it recently. It can be done. They just got to get the right thing. And yes, he is young. You're exactly right. But the guy has, I mean, he, he took over that Memphis program when he was 33, 34, and all they've done is get better. He knows how to recruit guys because here's his philosophy. And I find this just absolutely great because he talked about this in the off season in a couple of interviews I read. He said to win at a place like Memphis, we know we're not going to get the players that, you know, Texas gets and, you know, Missouri and Ole Miss and places like that necessarily. He said, we went and got really talented skill guys, and we got serious defensive linemen. Because we figured if we could just disrupt everybody's day with our defensive line, and then we put skill guys in positions to, to make plays, either outside or in the, in the backfield, or really in the backfield for Memphis, we could, we could mess with people. And that's exactly what they've done. Yep. Yep. Um, all right. So you rattled off a lot more resume than I had on Eli Drinkwitz, but I love this hire for Missouri. And, you know, Jay, you and I talked about this a couple of days ago. I didn't know what Missouri's hiring philosophy was going to be because Gary Pinkle did an incredible job going back to the Big 12 days and then taking the Tigers to back-to-back SEC championship appearances in Atlanta in the first two years that the Missouri Tigers were part of the SEC when he retired somewhat due to health concerns. Um, they promoted Barry Odom from within. This is kind of the first time in a very long time that Missouri has gone into the coaching hiring sweepstakes. I didn't know what they were going to do. They kept this, I'll say, they kept this very quiet until all of a sudden um, Drinkwitz is the guy that they, that they named and I think that I think it's a great hire for them. We'll see we'll see how it plays out for Missouri, but I really like the hire. I like South Florida bringing in Clemson's co-offensive coordinator Jeff Scott. Like you said, it's a little bit of a shock to me that somebody hasn't come for those guys harder sooner. Um, I, I think that's a really good hire for a South Florida job. That again, you know, we've seen it at UCF, we've seen it at USF. They've had good teams. At both of those schools, no, I don't think that USF is a place where you're going to win titles. Again, you know, like you were just talking about what what Mike Norvell talked about when he was at Memphis. But I think that's a good job, and I think that he's a good man for it, a good candidate, and and so I like that. Now, Jay, I will never, ever (laughs) like anything about Lane Kiffin. Ole Miss, now the, the season, Ole Miss is coming off sanctions and they hire a guy who has left more than his share of smoldering ashes in the rearview mirror. That's it, you know, look, and, and for longtime gridiron breakdown listeners, you know this, and, and Jay knows this. I'm a lifelong Oakland Raiders fan, so my frustration and contempt with Lane Kiffin goes back a very long time. I don't think it, I won't say that I don't like the hire, 
I just, I don't like the guy. So let's talk about it. Let's try and talk about this more food, football neutral. I'm really curious, right, right off the bat in year one, now that he's got the job, I'm really curious to see what he's going to do with athletic quarterback John Reese Plumsley, uh, Plumley in Oxford. That guy's a great athlete. He's mm-hmm. got a lot to learn about the quarterback position and the finer points. But we've seen Lane Kiffin from USC, Oakland, Tennessee, USC, Alabama, FAU, Florida Atlantic, and now Ole Miss. He is not a guy who has brought the same offensive program to every place that he's been, be it college or the pros. He's adapted. And, you know, Plumlee was a guy who was on the roster but wasn't really expected to figure in to Ole Miss's plans this year under under Matt Luke. Due to injury and, and other circumstances, he winds up playing. You know, will Plumlee still be the quarterback or will Lane move him to somewhere else? If he's the quarterback, how will he take advantage of it? The guy's an incredible athlete. I watched him a couple of times this year against much better football teams. He's intriguing. I wouldn't touch Lane Kiffin. I wouldn't trust him to be dog catcher in my town, but he is, he's an intriguing character. And he, he is a great offensive football mind. I'll never say that, that he's not. So um, there's my thought on that. And then, so my last thought on the coaching roundtable right now is this. Memphis and App State, Appalachian State, are probably the best jobs open. Here's why I say it. App State has become a power in the Sun Belt, and their past two coaches landed jobs in the Power Five. Same is true of Memphis. So if you are an up-and-coming coach, if you're a guy with real potential on the rise, Memphis and App State are schools that are in good position. You're, you're, the team still has a lot of good infrastructure in place. And if you're a guy that's looking to make your mark and then vault that into a bigger and better job, I think those are places to be. I'll throw my last one out. I'm very sad that Jeff Tedford's health has declined to the point that he's had to retire again. I don't know how good a job Fresno State is in terms of putting you in a position to get into a great coaching job, but Tedford did a really good job there, and the next coach in will inherit some talent and some stability, and you can maybe do something there. Um, but I think Memphis and Appalachian State are the two best jobs in their conferences. Um, I, I would I throw in I would there. throw in a hat for Colorado State too. I think that's a that's a fine job. They put in a lot of resources. They just opened up a new facility and upgraded the stadium a little bit. I think that's a pretty good job too. I don't disagree with you that App State yeah. and Memphis are great G five jobs at, at all. I think they they're absolutely top notch but i do think colorado state's a pretty pretty decent job too and you can win there i mean that not going one the there the only thing that i will yeah. say i look and i'm glad you mentioned it that helps the one thing that i look at colorado is not a great and, and again we're not talking about five star blue chip high school football in colorado is not tremendous mm, true recruiting is a challenge there but again you know mike bobo did a nice job there 
they parted ways. Jim McElwain did a nice job there. And, and we've seen over the years, again, in that, you know, kind of that, that second, third tier, Colorado State's had a few moments of glory. I think it's a good job. I think App State and Memphis are better jobs. Let me ask you this, because I didn't put this on the sheet. I just I just dreamed it Hi. up, so I want to throw you a curveball. Yep. Toughest job between these two, UNLV or New Mexico? Oh, man. Okay, you know what? Okay. This may I, – I didn't have a strong thought on this. I had no idea this question was coming to me, but I like it. I'm going to say New Mexico, and here's why. I don't know for a fact that the Oakland Raiders coming to Las Vegas and putting an NFL team in the city of Las Vegas in Nevada is going to help, but they've never had it. And it's never going to happen in New Mexico. And so I wonder, I wonder if having, you know, the presence of, you know, it's not scheduled yet, but the Raiders are opening up a beautiful state-of-the-art new stadium. There could be Super Bowls in that stadium. The NFL draft now travels where it didn't before. Las Vegas has always been, you know, plenty fun city um, for um, people all over the world. But in terms of football, the Raiders' presence, it's not a guarantee. It's not a lock that the Raiders' presence makes Las Vegas a better or more desirable football city. But it's something new that, you know, is not going to happen in New Mexico. I'm kind of curious about that. Will it bring in more money? Will people who come in, you know, will people come in on a Friday or a Saturday and go be willing to go watch a UNLV football game before they watch uh, a Las Vegas Raiders football game? Mm. I don't know. But right now, I would say I think that there's more upside potential in UNLV and the right coach who finds a way to tap into the presence of one of 32 NFL teams and one of 32 NFL cities, actually 31 because the Jets and Giants are both in the Meadowlands in New Jersey. Um, I'm kind of curious. I think that that's a potential bonanza that again, it's not going to make UNLV more desirable than going to Ohio state or Notre Dame or Texas or Oklahoma or, Alabama or Clemson, but if your choice is there versus New Mexico or Colorado State or Boise State, the right coach might really be able to to sell that and say, we got NFL coaches who are going to be scouting right here in your backyard. Give us a chance. Yeah. I think that the right coach could make that work, and, and, and New Mexico can't offer you that. No, I, I don't disagree with you. I, I think you're you're right on there. I just thought it was interesting and, and was a yeah. good chance to talk about it. The fact, and you brought it up, UNLV is going to have the built-in luxury of having an NFL team to share a stadium with. That's not a small thing, especially no. out in the middle of the desert like that. So I think it'll be interesting to watch. I think that is an interesting job. I think New Mexico New Mexico falls in a category of a lot of teams, and we're going to have an off-season show about this. Of teams, I think, could, could do much better if they would just shift gears a little bit and maybe wind up in the FCS. And I've 
got teams on my list for that that might surprise people, but that's for another day on Donahue, as you like to say. Yes, so, sir. So we're going to move on to our yearly awards. Great our breakdown for years. We've kind of done superlatives at the end of the year, whether we've just yep. covered the SEC or we've kind of covered nationally. And so I, I wanted you to weigh in on these as well. And I, we we got five categories here. Freshman of the year. The reason we pick freshman of the year is because, and we probably should start doing transfer too, but recruiting is so important in college football. It's nice to recognize when a, when a fresh Vital. kid runs in and does stuff. Special teams player of the year, that's part of the game. you got to talk about it. Defensive player of the year, offensive player of the year, and then obviously coach of the year. And so team of the year will be decided on the field, thank goodness. So yes, I wanted to will. start with some of these superlatives, and I'm going to start us off with freshman of the year. And my guy is Derek Stingley Jr., defensive back from LSU. They talked about that guy leading up through the summer and in the media days that, hey, that was going to be a guy that LSU's defense was going to anchor around. And I was like, really? You got Grant Delpit there? What are you talking about? And Coach O and Dave Aranda in particular talked about this Stingley guy is going to be our lockdown, shutdown corner. And he has been exactly that. He took away the best receiver so many times, made big hits, picked off people and deflected passes was the impact player they needed. And he's only 19 years old. So he's got at least two more years of doing that. And look, it's not uncommon to see LSU have a great DB, but have one that comes out of the gate out of high school doing that Patrick Peterson, Tyran Matthew kind of stuff. That was impressive. And this dude is just about Claiborne. I know that, I know that Claiborne wasn't a big success in the NFL, but at the college level, Yep, yep, yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. About. Yeah, you know, LSU's had those guys, and Stingley is – the thing about him that I like most, Josh, is he is about as surefire a tackler in open space as I've seen in college football this year. So I picked him as my freshman of the year, Derek Stingley Jr., defensive back, LSU. So your pick for freshman of the year. Okay, so let me, let me, let me just start out with – he's the guy that's going to win it. He deserves it. He should. Everything you said, I I couldn't agree with more. He was very impressive, you know, and in particular, you know, in the Alabama game where Alabama has four electric wide receivers. It was incredible. And then, you know, LSU's got wide receivers and you don't get a lot of one-on-ones anymore with the way the game has changed and practices are changing. But he was going up against first-rate talent all the time, but here is my, and Jay, as soon, you're not going to know who I'm going to pick, but as soon as I say it, you're going to be like, I should have seen it coming. Jaden Daniels, quarterback, Arizona State. Yeah. Mm. So here's my thoughts on him. Here, here's why I picked him. As a quarterback, you know, and we talked about this when I mentioned um, uh, Plumlee, John Reese Plumlee at, at, at Ole Miss. Plumlee's got a lot to learn about the quarterback position, but he's inc- he's a phenomenal athlete. All right. Jaden Daniels, he doesn't do all the things at the quarterback position at the highest level that you would like, but he's a true freshman. And I watched this kid, this young man. Back, you know, look, Michigan State didn't turn out to be a very good team. But Mike D'Antonio had a great defense. Mark D'Antonio had a great defense again. He went in to East Lansing and he led them to a win. He battled all your long. That game against Oregon, where Oregon, all they had to do was go down to the desert, win that game. They're probably in the playoffs. 
Jaden Daniels, the thing that just blows me away, right, and, and look, you know, when you were talking about it, it's his poise. This guy, it reminds me a little bit, it reminds me a little bit of, 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 uh, of, of Jalen Hurts, the poise, the killer, whatever the situation is, it never looks too big for him. Now, to be a truly great college quarterback, to be a potential NFL quarterback, he's going to have to get a lot better at some of those fundamental things, those, those fundamental skills. He's going to have to develop. But the athletic skill set, the mental toughness, and the poise. In a Pac-12 where, again, there wasn't necessarily a great team, you know, like we were talking about earlier, but he saw a number of quality opponents, both in conference and on that trip to East Lansing. Jaden Daniels impressed the hell out of me. I think he's a great talent. I hope that he develops. I hope he develops the finer points to go along with the heart and and the poise and the and the head. But that's my freshman of the year. I really liked what I saw out of him. I think he's a I think he's a tremendous football player. Herm Edwards has a good one and putting him out there as a true freshman. He didn't look like a true freshman in big moments. So that was my that's that's my freshman of the year. I think that is an excellent pick and you make a great case for it. And yes, I saw that that guy play and and really do some very special things. He's gonna be exciting to watch going forward. So we're up to special teams player of the year. And so Josh, I will pitch it to you for this one. This one, all right. I'm gonna get I could potentially get so much crap for bias, except for that the numbers are there. Jalen Waddle, wide receiver, punt returner, kick returner from Alabama. He led the nation in return yardage. But that's not the only reason I'm picking him. I mean, he's got that very measurable. Here's the thing, and Jay, we've talked about this all season long. There are better receivers at Alabama, and I know we're talking about special teams, but stay with me. Jalen Waddle has the best of my memory I have I cannot think of another athlete or football player who has the acceleration he does I've seen guys who are faster you know on Alabama um, it said Henry Ruggs beat him in a 40-yard dash not by much but he's technically not the fastest guy on his own team but that ability and it reminds me I see this and it's one of the things that I love about great hockey players because you're doing that on ice and ice skates to go from like a near standing position to find an extra gear where they just skate at just this I mean just as you're watching it your your eyes are saying you can't do that Jalen Waddle does and in addition to you know reading the blocks and doing it his acceleration, really, it's second to none. And so he was my special teamer of the year. And then in addition to the plays he made, having watched Alabama throughout the year, and I'm going to give you a spoiler alert right now. He's the only Crimson Tide player that I've got 
on my postseason award list right now. Um, to see him, you know, just be able to accelerate and and to do those things. I don't think I've seen another athlete just like him. And so, um, and I watched teams in those games because I watched every Alabama game this year. The plays he made and the plays that were made because there were coaches who said, we would rather go for it on fourth down. We would rather risk shanking a 19-yard punt. Teams that kicked to him were sorry and teams that wouldn't Paid for that too. He's an incredible weapon. Um, Jalen Waddle is my um, is my special teams player of the year this year. So we actually agree on this one because I had Jalen Waddle as my special teams player of the year too. And just for where everybody accuses me of SEC bias, and there may be a little bit of that, I'll admit. I've seen him do too. I think you hit hit it right on the head with the acceleration. And I'm going to steal a line off your Twitter account at JD Hathaway on Twitter. There's fast, and then there's Jalen Waddle. And that dude is fast, and and I think the the big reason and I wrote it up in the Tallahassee Times column, the big reason I picked him for not only special teams player of the SEC, where I write the SEC breakdown, but for of the year is it's what teams would do to get around him, and including yeah. and not limited to what Auburn did to get around him, and they found a way to win the game doing it. But that guy is a that that is a difference maker when you know if, if he gets the ball, he can flip the field for you, which is what you want. But even if he doesn't, you're getting set up for it absolutely outstanding player and I'm real curious to see if he remains in that role because he's definitely going to be a starting wide receiver next year but that's another day on the show let's move on to the defensive player of the year and man there were some dudes this year that I could have put in this honestly and I purposely made myself not homer out, so I, I limited my, I pulled my two Auburn guys off of the list, Derek Brown and Marlon Davidson, even though I love them and I think they're outstanding. And I really looked at not only numbers, but just impact that guys have on games. And I just kept coming back to one guy that, I, even though there were a couple of games where he, he kind of disappeared a little bit, I, I, there still was no more impactful, outstanding defensive player in the year for me than Chase Young, the defensive end from Ohio State. Even when games when he wasn't the direct focal point of like messing up everything, because teams were having to commit so much attention to him, other guys on that outstanding Ohio State defense were able to swarm and shut down opposing offenses. So Chase Young is so fast off the edge. He's so strong. He can get around blocks so good. I'm really interested to watch this guy on the next level as well because pass rush is such a premium in the NFL. But just in college, man, this dude is fun and it's going to be real fun watching him go up against that Clemson offensive line in that first round of that playoff. So I picked Chase Young defensive end from Ohio State as my defensive player of the year. Jay, we agree on this one. We agree on this one. And I'm kind of glad. I'm glad that you mentioned. So obviously there were a couple of games where, right, NCAA, right or wrong, missed a couple of games. Let's set that aside. There were some games where he didn't have the direct numbers, the measurables. And again, this is where defense is, you know, it, it, it's in a lot of ways, it's part of why it's a big part of why, you know, we don't see defensive players win Heisman trophies. They don't have those kind of counting stats, but I liken it. I'm going to use an example. Davion Clowney has been an outstanding NFL player and he went, you know, he went number one overall to the Houston Texans coming out of South Carolina. But people questioned 
they didn't necessarily question his motor in does he care, but he was so good and he was so much better than anybody else on those defenses. When he'd get triple teams, they questioned is like when he knew that they were going to put three guys on him and he had no chance of making the play, did he get kind of bored or frustrated with that? The thing to me that's remarkable about Chase Young is from what I saw, and I didn't, I didn't get to watch every snap of every play, but I don't think that the reason that he didn't necessarily make some of those plays came because he was taking it off. It's because a handful of times this year, the opposing coaches said, we will put 17 guys, and we've only got 11 on the field. We will put 17 guys in your way. You will not beat us. But even if he wasn't the guy making the plays, he was impacting every single play. It's been a long time. You know, I go back to, you know, a guy like Ndamukong Sue. And what was remarkable about Sue, he was doing it from the interior. It's been a long time since I've seen an edge guy like Chase Young. He was clearly my defensive player of the year. And there were a lot of dudes, like you said, there were a lot of fantastic defensive players. But Chase Young, he is, he was for me the most disruptive defensive presence in America this year. And you can make the case that he should win the Heisman if we're going to give it to the best college football player in America. You can make the case he should be the number one draft pick. Now, you also mentioned, you know, Auburn had a couple of serious defensive dudes. Uh, but, but for me, and, and there were a lot of them, you know, Georgia, great defensive, a lot of defensive talent. But for me, I'm going with Chase Young. I, I agree with you. I thought it was, I thought it was outstanding. Well, absolutely. Well, it's time to go to the offensive side of the ball, and this is your pick first here, Offensive Player of the Year. <clears throat> this pains me. This pains me a little bit, but I'm going Joe Burrow, quarterback LSU, the prohibitive favorite to win the Heisman Trophy. <clears throat> and I know that, look, right, Heisman is flawed. Um, you know, quarterbacks get too much credit, too much blame, all that Here's the thing. Here's some of the reasons. All right. I talked about it, Jay, you know, just like microcosm when we were talking earlier in the show about the SEC championship and his ability physically when great football players were chasing him down and he shut them off. And he didn't just shut them off and go get a six-yard run. He shut them off and he threw a dart. 40 yards down the field and got a touchdown. There's the athleticism of it. Then, his touchdown to interception ratio as the number one team in the land and a team that went up against good defenses this year. Again, you know, LSU, they played Auburn. They played Florida. They played um, Texas, who wasn't a great defense, but they're not terrible. Um, you know, they went up against some good teams. 48 to 6 touchdown interception ratio, 4,700 yards. 
And then here's another thing. And this is near and dear to my heart. Mark Ingram is the first Heisman Trophy winner at Alabama. Now you're like, why are you bringing that up? Here's why. Ingram had a great season. Auburn set out in the Iron Bowl say, yeah, it's not going to be you. He was a non-factor against Auburn. Was about to get eliminated from it. And then he bounced back and had a great SEC championship game against Florida. Here's the thing with Joe Burrow. He only had, all right, 48 to 6. He had one game where he had two interceptions, multiple turnovers. He threw five touchdowns in that game and nearly 400 yards. The thing to me, and one of the things that I think is going to be really interesting when we get to this, Jay, about NFL potential, the consistency that Joe Burrow played with. And again, in an SEC conference that was the SEC the toughest conference this year? I don't know, but they certainly weren't the weakest of the Power Five. He did not have one game, not one, where he played a bad or mediocre game. It was just a matter of some games he was more special than others. And so if we're talking about Offensive Player of the Year, among the things I'm looking at is, did you do it, you know, not did you have a couple of great games. You know, Devontae Smith at Alabama had a five-touchdown game um, this year. Now, that's really impressive, but that was one game. His stats are inflated by having had, you know, a record-breaking game of the year. To me, with Joe Burrow, he did it every game, 13 games, weak opponent, great opponent. He never faltered. It hurts me to say it, but to me, Joe Burrow is the Offensive Player of the Year and I think a worthy Heisman Trophy winner. Man, it's hard to argue with that, and the guy is absolutely outstanding. You, you've nailed all the superlatives on him, but he's not who I picked for it. For the national, Who'd you have, Jay? For the National Award. I went up to the Great North, and I grabbed Jonathan Taylor running back at Wisconsin. Oh, that's a good pick. And let me tell that's you a good what. good pick. All right. This yeah. young man on 299 carries this year, 1,909 yards on the ground, that's six and a half average, 21 times he's hit the end zone, pay dirt. But here's the thing in his game this year that wasn't there before. They'd only He'd only caught eight balls the previous two seasons and no touchdowns. This year, 24 catches, 209 yards, eight and a half on the average, five touchdowns. He became the all-around weapon for Wisconsin and not just in the traditional right-of-the-gut way. The dude plays with guts. He runs hard. He runs super fast. And he is an absolute touchdown machine. And I honestly think in the age of quarterbacking and all that kind of stuff, when that really gets all the glory and, and fine you know, on that – it's it's neat to see a running back put up those tremendous numbers and realize that he's getting totally overlooked for everything else nationally. And then when you dig into it, here's the thing, and I know it's not lifetime award, but I think his season superlatives are enough to give it to him. But listen to this. His freshman year, 1,977 yards, 13 touchdowns yep. on 300 yep. carries. His sophomore year, 307 carries, 2,194 yards, 16 touchdowns. And then this year, he's 1,900 yards on nearly 321 touchdowns. The fastest guy to 5,000 yards ever as a running back. 
Uh, this guy, and here's the other thing too, just a really good dude. Like if you hear him talk, just a neat guy, real smart, and and he's not what you would consider their prototypical running back. He's actually the more modern running back. When you think of Wisconsin running backs, right? You think of like Ron Dane, you know, and people like that. This dude's five eleven and two fifteen. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's he's much more like Ingram or somebody like that. I love yeah. the way this guy plays. I love the way he runs. I love the way he and, – and when he is not involved in the play and they need him to make a play, I saw in the – or the first game of the season when they played South Florida, Blitzer came in, Jack Cohn's back there ready to fire a ball, and he absolutely pancakes the linebacker coming at him. And this is a dude from, like, Miami, Florida, so this is an athlete All right, coming at him. It's not just some chump. He absolutely pancaked the dude. I'm like, this dude is the all-round back. He's He would be my number one running back if we were doing NFL draft stuff. But beyond that, Jonathan Taylor, I think, deserves my notification as Offensive Player of the Year from Wisconsin. Jay, I love him, and it's hilarious. It's hilarious, you know, um, long-time listeners, people who know us will know how funny it is that I went quarterback and you went running back. Yes. <laughs> Not so much that you went quarterback, but that I didn't go running back because I think the forward pass is an abomination. I love Jonathan Taylor, and I agree with you. You know, all the things he did, I would be thrilled if he wins, you know, Doak Walker, an offensive player of the year, and then Joe Burrow wins, wins Heisman. I love to watch the guy. And again, you know, like you said, it's not a lifetime achievement, but you look at what he's done over his career. And again, this isn't what necessarily gets you votes, but when you talk about draft status and look, I'm an Alabama fan. Everybody knows that. But one of the things that I've liked about Alabama backs is that whoever the offensive coordinator has been, you have to be at least competent to get on the field as a blocker and or receiver. You may not be true triple threat, but rare is the Alabama back who only does one of those things. And so I look at Taylor. I think that he's not a great receiver, but he developed that this year. His ability as a blocker, when we talk about, you know, there aren't, many first round backs in the NFL, but there are some. He's one of them. He's an elite runner, day one, period the end. And as a guy that as much as you know I have an NFL team, but I'll follow players because I watch college football so much, I will follow players to see how they do. I'm real curious to see how he does on the next level. I hope that the right team gets him because I think he's got potential to be a factor back in the NFL if he goes to the right team and and I hope he does. I like him a lot. So we're at the end of our yearly awards, and it's time to do Coach of the Year. And, again, you can call me Homer if you want, but I'm giving this to Ed Orgeron, and here's why. It takes a lot for a head coach to rise to the level of being you know, top-level Power 5 head coach and to do it twice in a career is another thing. But it takes even a bigger one to learn from mistakes in the past. And I'm not just talking yeah. about like his terms at Ole Miss. I'm talking about when he first got to LSU. Tried, you know, Matt Canada as offensive coordinator. Didn't really like how that was going. Didn't think it would work in the SEC. Started meddling a little bit. And it was Steve Insminger, the current offensive coordinator, that told him, look, man, I've been on staffs at Auburn where that happened, and it does not end well. We need to pick a lane and do something. And so he went out and said, all right, what do I need to do? And he started going to coaching clinics, and he found Joe Brady. 
you know, who really architected a lot of the, the Sean Payton and the passing schemes from the Saints, and he brought him over, yeah. and, he, and he put him in the room with Insminger and said, can you two guys get along and make this work? And to their credit, they did. And to be a CEO coach who – he's already got Dave Aranda – great defensive coordinator and he said dave that's One yours of the best baby in the country is I, not the best defensive yes coordinator i will go country, get you yeah. defensive linemen because that's what i do is that order like he recruits those guys that's why he kept getting jobs after he got fired at ole miss he's a great defensive line coach a great closer i will get you those guys you make them dudes awesome we can do that and i need you two guys to take our offense and make it modern we've got talent in joe burrow we're not using it we got talent on this field let's figure out how to do it and then to not only get it to work but to keep it working when that team had to play you mentioned it florida auburn alabama georgia just to name a few this year and texas Texas. on the road and to go and do it the way they've done it to get to this point the guy's done an absolutely outstanding job and again i i laughed when they hired him a little bit because i thought i don't know is that the right thing though i will say he is the perfect fit for LSU. That is the perfect job for him. Yeah. And what he has done there is absolutely remarkable. So I'm going to give my nod to Ed Orgeron from LSU as my coach of the year. So your thoughts and then your coach of the year. All right. So I agree with all of it. And, you know, so it came down today. Joe Brady won the Frank Broyles assistant coach of the year. Now, that's 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 a special and important and and valid award in and of itself to be recognized just as doing a great job as an assistant. It also reflects, I think, on a head coach who goes and hires that guy and puts them, you know, again, we talk about this. Coaches make, you know, they don't block anyone. They don't tackle anyone. They throw no touchdowns. They don't run. Their job is to put their guys in a position to succeed. So to talk about the job that Ed Orgeron did, and and you hit on on so many of them, one of the things that Coach O did this year was he went and hired, and, and Joe Brady, when he was accepting the award, talked about how amazing it is that Coach O went and hired the assistant of the assistant. Joe Brady was not an offensive coordinator an assistant head coach. He was an assistant passing game coordinator for the New Orleans Saints, but they went and got him. And then, you know, Steve Emsminger, a guy who is a veteran offensive coordinator, but, you know, hadn't really helmed great high profile offenses. Everybody put, checked their ego at the door and did their job. And, and so I think that, I think it's a real testament to, to Coach O to go out, hire that guy and for, for them to allow Joe Brady to bring all that he brought to, to the LSU offense. So I, I love your choice. I've got a different guy and it's not because I disagree with anything that you said because I don't. But I mentioned him earlier here in in the podcast here for the Gridiron Breakdown. My coach of the year, Matt Rule, Baylor Bears. To have taken over a situation that was so broken for such horrible reasons. To take on that job that nobody really should have wanted. 
you know, Art Bryles had the high-powered, high-flying offenses, you know, won a Heisman Trophy with Robert Griffin III, one of the finer athletes that I've seen and, and one of the better college quarterbacks. But for Matt Rule to come into a very difficult situation and to achieve what he did to win every game except for the two he played against Oklahoma, but in those games to lose in a very close game. Games that Oklahoma was the more talented team, but Baylor played them right up to the edge of it. And and to take them to the brink multiple times. And, you know, he didn't do it just with smoke and mirrors with riding a, uh, a hot player and or or a gimmick scheme they won those games playing football all phases they played really well baylor's not the best team in the country they're not the best team in the big 12 not yet but matt rule took over a very difficult situation he got great performance out of the players he had and he did it from, you know, to the best of my knowledge, with everything I can see, he did it without taking shortcuts. He coached him up. He and his staff, they coached him up. I think, I think Ed Orgeron did a great job. And if he wins coach of the year, he deserves it. But I really, I look at what Matt Rule did at Baylor and, you know, again, Raise your hand if you thought LSU would be the number one team in college football. No one saw that. But raise your hand if you thought that Baylor would be in the Big 12 championship. Honestly, I think Baylor's a bigger surprise than LSU. And LSU's a surprise. There are a lot of, you know, P.J. Fleck, there were a lot of guys who did great jobs this year. A lot of guys who did. And, and you and I, we could, look. That would be a fun show, guys, who kind of did that under the radar job. But for me, I'm I'm taking I'm taking Matt Rule. I think what he did at Baylor was remarkable, and I think it's repeatable. I don't know if they're going to win the Big Twelve next year, but I don't think that he just had a big season based on the right guys at the right time. I think that he's building a program at Baylor for the long haul, provided he wants to stay at Baylor and someone doesn't poach him. But I love all your picks. We agreed on some. I took some guys that you didn't and vice versa, but I can't argue with a single one of the guys that you that you picked. There was a lot of great football. And again, we talked about it at the top. This was a really fun football season. I agree, and I think the the diversity of the pick shows that. So just to remind everybody how we picked, we'll go in in order here. Coach of the year, you yep. had Matt Rule from Baylor. I had Ed Orgeron from LSU. Offensive player of the year, you had Joe Burrow, quarterback LSU. I had Jonathan Taylor, running back Wisconsin. Defensive player of the year, we agreed. We both had Chase Young, the defensive end from Ohio State. Special teams player of the year, we agreed. We both had Jalen Waddle, the returner from Alabama. And then for freshman of the year, you had Jaden Daniels, quarterback Arizona State. And I had Derek Stingley Jr., 
defensive back from LSU. So I think we've we've done a good job breaking down those things. We got one thing left to do, man. There's one game left in the college football season, yes, and it is it is a special one, near and dear to my heart. I've, I've told it before in the breakdown. Before my brother attended uh, West Point, uh, the U.S. Military Academy Army, so I've been to an Army Navy game. It's definitely something you need to do if you can ever make it uh, to, to the place to, to check one out. And I, you know, I'm going to give give you you know kind of the breakdown on this one. I'll tell you what Alan's thoughts were because he did send them to me, and then I want to get your pick real quick yeah. too. Uh, Josh, this is this is what's neat to me about watching this game. Both of these teams, big time running teams. Okay, they both over three hundred yeah. yards on the ground a year. They run that triple option. Hallelujah, thine the glory. <laughs> Let me just say that. Sorry, Na- go ahead. Navy has has added passing to it this year though, because Malcolm Perry, who is the guy for Navy for running the ball and as quarterback throwing the ball, thrown for over a thousand yards this year on on only seventy nine throws. Now Kelvin Hopkins from Army's thrown for five hundred and seventy yards on seventy five throws. So that tells you the difference. When Navy throws it, they're going deep down the field, but they both get a lot on the ground, and they both average yep. over 30 points a game. Navy averages almost 40 at 39.3. Army's at 30.20 or uh, 30.3. And, and then let me just stop you right there. Mm-hmm. You know, for all the things, you know, the service academies, they don't hold the same place in college football today that they did historically. But I think it deserves a, a pause. Who would have thought that Army and Navy would be high-powered scoring offenses? Maybe yeah. they don't do it in the most um, modern of ways, but to put up those kind of points, that one, I did the same research you did, surprised me. It surprised me to no end. That's just not what you think. And again, you know, because they don't do it through the passing game as much, so much of it's running game. To be able to put that number of points on the scoreboard week in and week out, doing it running, uh, it's 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 remarkable. It really Continue, is. Please. Now they they both defensively give up about the same. Navy average is giving up about twenty four points a game, and some of that's inflated because Notre Dame really put it to him this year. Army gives up about twenty two points a game on defense, and and we should mention Army's five and seven going into this game. They're not going bowling yep. this year. Navy yeah. is nine and two. All right, they're much yep. better football yep. team record-wise, but evenly, when you start looking down the games, the statistics and how things go, here's where Navy has advantages. They can pass the ball a little more consistently. They don't turn the ball over as much, and they do run for for more yards than than Army does. Uh, Army, on the other hand, it is about trying to get that option going, but here's the thing for me when I look at this one, Josh, and and when I came down to making my pick, Army gets their thing done. It starts with Kelvin Hopkins, the quarterback, but they really spread it around amongst their backs to get their 312 yards a game on the ground. Navy. Great diversity. Yeah. Navy, it's almost all Malcolm Perry. Not entirely, but he's got 1,500 yards rushing this year. That's awesome. On, even on an, uh, for any team, but for a quarterback, that's amazing. But that also means in games when they have struggled – and when they, you know, they've almost lost, or when they lost their two games, it's because those opposing defensives found a way to bottle him in. And there's two things that Jeff Monken's team have been able to do since he got at Army. One, they know how to impose their will, and they run a different brand of the triple than what Navy and Air Force and some of these other teams do. Army runs the most slow plotting, sit there, snap it with one second to go, wait 34 seconds before the next one. They grind you into dust. Oh, they do. They do. They do. And against Navy, they found ways to make this happen. I'm picking a little bit with my heart here, 
But I honestly think Army's going to pull the upset this weekend. They're going to shock Navy. They're going to get the third in a row. I'm taking Army 19-17 to over the Naval Academy. Now, I'm going to give Allen's pick real quick, and then I'll let yep. you go. What, so, what, what did he have? So Allen said to me, you know, he said, look, I think it's going to be close, but Navy's the overall better team. He thinks that the, defensively their numbers are a little skewed because of that Notre Dame blowout. He thinks they're more yeah. consistent. So so Allen's got Navy winning this game, and that's what he picked. So real quick, your pick on the Army-Navy game. Yep. So, all right, my heart, I want Army to win all right, so like you look, I I'm so grateful. I've got members of my family who have served in all the different branches of of the armed services, and I have tremendous respect for for all of them. And something that our listeners nationwide may not know, one of our um, sports stations is an Army football affiliate, so I get to listen. I don't get to watch a lot. They don't get a lot of TV, but I get to listen to a lot of Army football games and a lot of Army football, you know, pregame. I know a little bit about this team and, and, and I love it. I want Army to get this sixth team and this sixth win. And one of my closest friends is a West Point graduate. Army for years and years and years was a laughing stock among the armed services in football. And Jeff Monken, he's done a great job. They're be- they've, they've come so far. This year, unfortunately, I think, well, I say unfortunately. This year, I think Navy's the better team. I think they're going to get their 10th regular season win. I do think it's going to be close. I do think it's going to be low scoring, even though we talked about the number of points that both of these teams have put up. I think that Navy is the better team. I think they're going to get the win. They're going to get that 10th win, and Army's going to come up just a little bit short. I've got this one, 23-16, Navy wins. I think, I think Navy's the better football team this year. I'll be honest with you. I think you and Alan are making the smart picks. I'm definitely picking with the heart. But I, I will say this, wh- whoever you root for, whatever, this is one that you should watch. It's always a fun game, and it's always neat to watch all the pageantry and the circ- all that stuff at the end of it when they get the, the cadets marching across the field and you've got all of that and the respect that they show for each other at the end of the game. I mean, it's a total battle during the game, but it's really neat to watch these these young men who we know are going to defend our country you know, for years to come and be leaders in, in industry and everything else that we do. It's neat to watch them here. And, and I, I, again, I've been watching this game since I was a kid and I'll continue watching it as long as I watch football. Cause it's, it's I'll be tuned in. Yeah. It's definitely a fun game and it's a great way to cap the, the regular season And Josh again. Thanks for stepping in here on the gridiron breakdown to talk with me about it and everything. Tell folks how they can follow you on the internet if they choose to do so. Anybody wants to know where I'm at? Um, Josh Hathaway, I'm on Facebook and JD Hathaway at Twitter. If you want to talk about football, you want to talk about music, I'm your man. Love it. Jay, I had so much fun. Uh, can't wait. You know, I've loved listening to you and Alan throughout the season and, you know, can't wait to see what we're going to talk about when we get into the bowl games, the playoffs and some of the other fun off season conversations that we can have, you know, just tonight sitting here having this conversation, football among friends, 
we've got podcasts for days. So um, I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Had a blast. And man, I can't wait to see where we go from here. Absolutely. Thanks again for joining in. And folks, thanks for listening to the show. Of course, you can always find the show by looking for your podcast feed, whether it's on Apple or Google or Stitcher or TuneIn or Spotify. You can find your feed at anchor.fm slash gridiron breakdown. You can also search the gridiron breakdown on Facebook, join our page, and you'll get updates about the show and different stuff. They've kind of, then we'll throw, you know, polls out and all that kind of stuff. We appreciate your support. And if you like the show, leave us a positive review on whatever platform you listen to it on and share it on your social media. We appreciate it the support. So for Alan, who's on assignment and for uh, alumnus and gridiron breakdown emeritus, Josh Hathaway, I'm Jay. You've been listening to the gridiron breakdown. Thank you for listening to the gridiron breakdown. The gridiron breakdown theme is sports time tonight by Phil Gerard, Reed Hayes, and Scott P. Shear. Tune in next week for more analysis and opinion from our hosts. I ain't saying much scared out there. I ain't saying fear. Now y'all scared to ask another question. 